Knowing God is the starting point to showing kindness. This message is the eighth in the series, 10 Lessons for a Life of Significance. The message is entitled, Show Kindness. Here is Pastor Dale O'Shields. Take your Bibles, your teaching sheets. We're involved in a series of messages, 10 lessons for a life of significance. 10 lessons for a life of significance. I want to talk today about showing kindness, the importance of learning to show, experiencing kindness and showing kindness in our lives. It's been said that life is lived in one of three levels. We can live life in the level of survival. A lot of people will live that way. They will survive from day in and day out. Every day is sort of a challenge for them. All of us face that from time to time. There are times that we have to survive from one day to the next. Then there's a level of success. Many people strive for success in life. They want to accomplish something that has meaning and value to achieve something with life. Nothing wrong with that. God, in fact, encourages us to do our best with our lives, to succeed as we can with this grace and power. Success is a good thing. But success is not the end thing. A lot of people think that when they arrive at some level of success, they've reached the highest pinnacle of life. I've got something under my belt. I've accomplished something. I've achieved something. I have some margin in my life. And so we begin to feel like, yes, life is well. Life is fine. But actually, the scripture teaches us that there's another level of living beyond certainly survival and beyond success. It's called a life of significance. While that word is not specifically found in the Bible, the concept of living a significant life is truly and clearly found in the Bible. Because what it means is this, to live successfully is to have things positively happen to you, but to live a significant life is to have good things happen through you to the people around you, especially using your life for the advance of God's kingdom. You can be successful and never be significant because success is about you. Success is about arriving at something positive for your own life, but significance is always about others. It's about experiencing a life that now flows through you to, again, bless the people around you and especially advance God's kingdom. God created you to experience significance. To understand how to live a significant life, we need some models And in this series together. We're looking at one particular model from the Old Testament. His name was David, King David. You might know him well. Maybe you've read some of his Psalms. You're certainly aware of the 23rd Psalm that David wrote. A variety of things that we see from Scripture, David and Goliath, all these various elements of David. He's a great character in Scripture. And David was a man who had a significant life. He lived a significant life because he was used by God to advance God's kingdom, to be a blessing to other people. And when you study the life of David, you begin to realize that there are certain characteristics that he possessed. In fact, the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. And so we're looking at 10 of these characteristics. We cannot look at all of them. There's so many wonderful lessons in the life of David, but there are many of them that we're looking at in these 10 lessons together. And one I want to talk about today, that's the, the principle of or the characteristic of kindness. David learned something about being kind. And if you and I are going to experience a significant life, we have to learn something about kindness as well. Kindness is critical to significance. You'll never be significant without learning how to be gracious and learning how to be kind. I'm going to share with you three lessons I think will help you from the life of David today, reminders for each one of us. The first lesson is very foundational, simple, but it's also profound, I believe, for us, and that's that we need to know God, because knowing God is the starting point for kindness. To understand what kindness is all about, you have to have, a, again, a model. You have to understand what it looks like in Scripture. You must understand what kindness looks like from God's perspective and from God's nature and character. And your image of God is extremely important. 
If I were to ask you this morning, how do you view God? What is your primary image of God? What do you think of when you think of God? I would imagine that many of us would think of God as certainly being righteous, and indeed he is. He always does the right thing. We think of God as being just. In fact, indeed, he is a just God. We understand that God is true, that God is light. We know that God is all-powerful. We understand that God is ever-present. We know that God is all-knowing. We know that God is eternal. We know that God is transcendent. He transcends all things. We know some of these things about God. But often in the midst of our thoughts about God and our theological understanding of God, we have an emotional experience of God. And some of us walk in our relationship with God as though God were always angry and always frustrated and always agitated with us, that God is somehow sitting in heaven and he's scrutinizing your life to such a degree that he's, he's, he's looking, looking for the next time you're about to make a mistake or you make a mistake and he pounces on you in that moment to bring about some kind of judgment over your life. We have oftentimes an angry mindset about God, that God is sort of very irritable and temperamental and he somehow gets agitated with us very quickly. And while indeed, as I said, God is righteous and God is true and God is just, God is not a God that is always angry with us. There's another side of God that you and I need to understand. Moses needed to understand this. I'll talk about Moses for a moment, then we'll look at David. There was a time when Moses was leading the children of Israel to the promised land. He'd already led them through the Red Sea and the sea had parted. He'd gone to Mount Sinai and God had given him the Ten Commandments. God himself with his own finger wrote the Ten Commandments. And while Moses was on the mountain, you might recall what the people of Israel did below. They formed a golden calf and began to worship. Can you imagine that? Moses comes down after 40 days with God, and there he is. He's experienced the glory, the majesty of God, and he comes down, and he finds that the people of God are worshiping a golden calf made with their own hands, and he, he confronts them on that issue, and, and then it goes on in the story of the children of Israel even coming out of Egypt, wanting to go back to Egypt, and so Moses is in this moment of trying to lead a very obstinate, resistant group of people, slave mentalities, and so Moses becomes very frustrated in his leadership. In essence, he says, I, I don't want to do this job anymore. God is, is too hard. These are, these are a bunch of tough, tough guys to lead and tough ladies to lead. I can't seem to get them to do the right thing. And he says, I just want to quit. And God encourages him to lead them onto the promised land. And Moses says, God, if you don't go with us, I'm not going to go. And I need something from you, God, that'll cause me to move forward. And Moses prayed a prayer. And that prayer is recorded in Exodus 33, verse 18. Here's his prayer. Then Moses says, now show me your glory. God, before I move any further, I can't do it unless I know you. I need to know your glory. I don't need to just think certain things about you. I need to see. I need to experience. I need to know who you are. I need to experience your glory. And in the very, very next chapter, we have a record of God revealing his glory to Moses. And I want you to see what the glory of God is. Here in this moment, God shows up and he passes in front of Moses, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, and he, God, passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. God says, Moses, I want you to know who I am. I want you to see my glory. Let me tell you who I am. I am the compassionate God. I am the gracious God. I am slow to anger. I'm abounding in love and faithfulness. I maintain love to thousands and I forgive wickedness and rebellion and sin. Moses, that's who I am. Moses, you need to know my gracious nature. 
You need to know that I'm a compassionate God. And in the same way that I'm compassionate, I want you to be compassionate with this obstinate group of people. I want you to be kind to this obstinate group of people. I want you to lead out of my nature. Moses found that while God was indeed righteous and God was indeed just, he was also loving and kind and gracious and compassionate. This is something that every person here needs to discover also. We need to see the glory of God and realize that our God is a compassionate God. He is a gracious God. Our God is slow to anger, not quick to anger. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. He is a God who maintains love to thousands, literally millions of people, billions of people, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's the God that we serve. Let me pose a question to you this morning. Can you imagine where you would be today if God was only righteous and just? If all we knew of God's nature was his righteousness and his justice, where would you be today? I'm not sure about you, but I know where I would be today. I would be in big trouble. How about you? If God were only righteous and just and there was no other dimension to the nature of God, his compassion, his love, his graciousness, his kindness, I would be in big trouble. I need a God who is indeed righteous and just and true, but I need a God who is compassionate and a God who is good and a God who is kind and a God who is slow to anger. I want to understand that dimension of God's love. And there are many Christians that will go through their entire life. They'll always view God from an angry perspective. They'll never embrace the reality of the good dimension of God's nature and character, his love toward them. And here's what's, here's the, here's the issue for you. Your view of God will affect your relationship with God. How you view God will affect how you relate to God. Additionally, how you view God and how you relate to God will determine how you relate to other people. See, religion will cause you to be judgmental and bitter and resentful toward people. You know, there are a lot of people that have got enough religion that's made them miserable. And they've never learned the value of who God really is. They've never been embraced with, baptized, we might say, in the love of God and baptized in the compassion of God and baptized in the grace of God. They haven't learned that grace at a deep level, so they never give it to the people around them. What you and I need to recognize is that our image of God needs to clearly embrace and include that he is loving and kind and gracious and compassionate. David understood this. As David lived with his father in Bethlehem and would go out and serve day by day on the hillsides of Judea, he would often spend those days in worship, spend those days in praise, spend those days getting to know God. And as he grew up, he continued to develop his relationship with God. And David learned who God was. And we find his view of God in the Psalm, Psalm 86, verse 15, David writes these words, but you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. In Psalm 103, verse eight, David writes again, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Once again, in Psalm 111, verse 4, David writes these words, He, God, has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. David's awareness of God's heart formed his heart because he knew God's heart. He developed a heart after God as well. And David knew what it was like to show kindness to people as God had shown kindness to him. I'm going to take you to the story that is really the heart of today's message. 
The beginning of the story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse number 4, and we'll end up in 2 Samuel chapter 9 to understand the culmination of the story. But you have to get chapter 4, verse 4 of 2 Samuel before we understand the culmination of the story. Notice what happens. I'll explain it to you a bit in a moment historically. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. Would you say his name with me? His name was Mephibosheth. That's a tough name to say. I would highly recommend you do not name your children that name, okay? <laughs> kind of hard to call him to dinner, Mephibosheth, okay? Let me tell you what happened. This was the time that King Saul was still king of Israel. And his son Jonathan, he and Saul went into battle one day and they were killed in Mount Gilboa, the Jezreel Valley, that area. So they were put to death. And so, as we read a few weeks ago, David receives news of that. He mourns about it. But there's also this moment when the news comes back to Saul's family, to the hometown of Saul's family. And Saul, Jonathan are, are dead. And so the news comes back to Jonathan's family to tell the family Jonathan and Saul have died in battle. And there was a nurse taking care of Jonathan's little boy, his five-year-old little boy. That five-year-old little boy, as we know him now, his name was Mephibosheth. And the Bible says that as, the, as this news came back, the, the nurse became very afraid because back in those days, if, if, if the king died and another king is taking his place, it's very likely that somebody's going to come and kill the entire family of the former king. No threats to the ongoing kingdom. So that was what the nurse felt. I've got to get this little boy out of here because surely the enemies that kill Saul and Jonathan will quickly come and kill him as well. So she grabbed up the five-year-old little boy and the nurse begins to run out of the house and begins to flee. And in the moment, somehow the Bible doesn't clearly tell us what happened, but, but likely she tripped or something transpired and she drops the boy and she dropped the boy in such a way that his his legs were broken in such a damaging way that he became lame for life. And so for the rest of his life, he can't walk. He's going to be taken care of by others. He's going to be a charity case for the rest of his life unless something miraculously happens to him. He's lame in both feet. And what was his name? Mephibosheth. That name Mephibosheth literally means in the Hebrew language, you are a shame. You're a shameful thing. Out of the mouth of shame. Some theologians believe that that name Mephibosheth was a name that was given to him after the accident. We don't know for sure, but it could have been that he had a different name. There's another name ascribed to him in Scripture. But, but nevertheless, he's now carrying with him the identity. He's carrying with him the label. Everywhere he goes, he's presenting himself. What is your name? My name is Mephibosheth. Oh, you're just nothing but shame. You're a shameful thing. So he's living his whole life under the label of being shamed. Shameful person, shameful thing. Now, I want you to pick up the story with me in 2 Samuel chapter 9, because this is where the story really gets good for Mephibosheth. This is years later. David is sitting around his palace one day, and he thinks of something that he's, he's made a promise to God about, and so he remembers, this he remembers a promise from the past made to Jonathan, and notice what happens. David is asking his servants around him. David asks, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show, what's the next word there, kindness for Jonathan's sake? 
Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba at your service? He replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he, bu- he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied, don't be afraid, David said to him. And obviously, Mephibosheth was afraid that David was going to take his life. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. I want you to see the story here. Mephibosheth experienced this life-altering trauma when he was five years of age. He was given a name that reinforced the pain in his life. He's called a shameful thing, coming from the mouth of shame. And by this time in his life, he's now grown into a young man, and he's moved to a place called Lodabar. Many times in Scripture, the names that are given to us, names of people, names of places, have significant meaning. And it's true for this particular place. Lodabar literally means, in the Hebrew language, a place of barrenness. It is a land that cannot produce any fruit. Bad farmland. Bad pasture. And you can't produce anything there. It is a land of barrenness. So here is Mephibosheth, a shameful thing. And he's living in Lodabar, which is a barren place. You can't produce anything in that environment. And he's living in the house of a man by, by the name of Machir, which means to sell. And so it might be indicated there that, that Mephibosheth even felt as though he had been sold into slavery. He's living an enslaved kind of life. Mephibosheth was sad. He was lost. He was helpless. He was hopeless. He was living a life of basic subsistence and survival. And when David found out where Mephibosheth was, he said, I, go, I want to show him kindness. David said, is there anyone still alive in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? Key word, the word kindness there in the Hebrew language is the word hesed. And the word hesed literally means and describes the loving kindness and the mercy and the grace of God. It's linked to God. It's one of the most powerful words in the Old Testament in terms of the loving kindness and compassion of God. Can I show him hesed? It implies a personal involvement, not just something that happens beyond the extension of your hand, but it embraces and brings you in. I want to show him the hesed of God. I want to bring him in close to me so he will know compassion and kindness and grace and mercy. And what I want you to see today is that David did for Mephibosheth what God does for you and me. He did the very same thing, and God brings you in. I'll talk more about this in a moment because it's such a powerful principle for us to realize, a concept that needs to move beyond just concept to reality in our lives. And God brings us in as David brought Mephibosheth close to him. 
And God also says, if I bring you close to me and I show you my kindness, I'm expecting you to show that same kind of kindness to others. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. I'll give you a summary of this first point. The summary of this first point is this. You've got to know God before you can show God. You can't show what you don't know. You have to know God if you're going to show God. And so once you get to know God in his compassion and kindness, then you can show that to others, even as David did to Mephibosheth. The second thing that I want to share with you today, very important point, is that this. Romans 5, 8, let me give it to you. I'll give it to you, these verses. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point us to in all our future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace. When you believe, you you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We learned the lesson, the valuable lesson of understanding that, in fact, God's grace is given to each one of us. The second point today is this. To show God's kindness, you have to change your thoughts about people and your treatment of people. Change your thoughts about people and your treatment of people. Go back with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, and notice what it says. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Kindness for Jonathan's sake. It's a very important statement there because David was motivated to show kindness to someone from Saul's family for Jonathan's sake. Why is that important? It's important because no one in Saul's family deserved to be treated kindly. No one from Saul's family deserved to be treated with compassion. In fact, Saul had been David's enemy. But David's commitment to help someone from Saul's family was based on a covenant that David had not with Saul, but on the covenant that David had with Jonathan. So Mephibosheth's rescue from barrenness and his rescue from shame would not have been possible without a covenant that Jonathan had with David and David had with Jonathan. What I want you to see here is this. David looked at Mephibosheth through the eyes of his relationship with Jonathan and the love that David had for Jonathan transferred to the love that David had for Mephibosheth. We see that in fact what's going on here is that as it comes to us in the same way that we relate to God, we don't deserve God's kindness. We do not deserve God's grace. We deserve the opposite of that. But in fact, God doesn't see us and treat us on the basis of our worthiness. He responds to us on the basis of what Jesus did for us. He sees us through the eyes of Jesus. So you got to picture this. The reason that David wanted to do good to Mephibosheth was not because of Mephibosheth. It was because of Jonathan. Are you with me today? 
Mephibosheth was a broken man. He was a shame-filled man, a broken man. He was a broken person living in a barren place. And the only reason that David reached down out to Mephibosheth was because he had a covenant with Jonathan. And you and I need to recognize this for our own lives. The reason that God's love reaches down to you and me is not because we're worthy of it. We're not worthy of it. I read it for you just a few moments ago from Romans 5, 8 and from Ephesians chapter 2. We're not worthy of the love of God at all. So God's love is not based upon your worthiness. Nobody's worthy, amen? There's not a single one of us here today that's worthy of the love of God. God's love for you is not based upon your worthiness or your perfection because we're not worthy nor are we perfect. But God's love for you is based upon something even greater. It's based upon the fact that he sees you through the eyes of Jesus. That he loves you because of his son. He loves you because of his savior. He loves you because he sees you through the eyes of Jesus. He reaches to you with his kindness because of Christ, for Christ's sake. How does God view people? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. This means that contrary to man's perspective, the Lord is not late with his promise to return as some measure lateness, but rather his delay, the delay in Jesus coming back, simply reveals his loving patience toward you because he does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God says, I want to see everybody in my family. Because of what Christ has done, I want everybody to come. I'm waiting to return so that more people can join into my family. First Timothy chapter two, verses four through seven. He wants not only us, but everyone saved. You know, everyone to get to know the truth that we've learned that there's one God and only one and one priest mediator between God and us. Jesus who offered himself in exchange for everyone held captive by sin to set them all free. Eventually the news is going to get out. This and this only has been, has been my appointed work getting this news to those who have never heard of God and explaining how it works by simple faith and plain truth. We're reminded of the fact that God reaches us because of what Christ did for us. The third point I want to share with you today is this. Kindness is what transforms people. Kindness is what changes lives. The Bible says that David found Mephibosheth for one purpose and one purpose only, as we've already described, and that's to show him kindness, to show him hesed. And this is exactly what David did. Note with me again, verses 5 through 8 of 2 Samuel chapter 9. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Can you imagine? Are you with me today? Can you imagine that moment when he received, Mephibosheth receives the news that David wants to see you? And all the fear that went through him. David, David, he found me. And now it's over with. And he comes in humbly to David's presence. And David says, Mephibosheth. And he says, I'm here, I'm your servant. And David says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Mephibosheth. I'm going to do something for you that goes beyond anything that you could imagine. I'm going to do some great things for you. Don't be afraid. And there in that moment, David said, here's what I'm going to do. From now on, you're going to eat at my table. I'm going to make sure you have food every day. And from now on, you're going to be considered one of my sons. 
And from now on, you're going to have restored to you everything that your parents and your grandfather had taken away from them. I'm going to restore that back to you again. And from this day on, your house is not in Lodabar. Your house is in Jerusalem. You're going to live in my palace for the rest of your life. One conversation with David changed Mephibosheth's life forever. One moment. The kindness of God changed his life forever. You know, so often we think of how people's lives get changed. People's lives don't get changed by judgment. People's lives get changed by mercy. People's lives don't get changed by hardness. People's lives get changed by by compassion, by kindness, by love flowing from us. And there in that moment, David showed the heart of God. And I'm going to wrap up this message by reminding you of four things that are necessary in your own life to understand of what God's grace and what God's kindness has done for you and for me. The first thing is this. God's kindness and God's grace brings you out of shame and out of barrenness. When you and I reach out to Jesus and we make him the Lord of our lives, God embraces us for the sake of Jesus and brings us into his family. He begins to wipe away all the shame and all the barrenness of our lives. And all of us here have something in common. Every person here, you have a past. Not a single one of us here that doesn't have a past. And in your past, you, if you look back, there are probably some regrets that you have in your past. Would you shake your head and say, yep, I have some regrets there. You probably have some things in your past that you're not proud of, some things in your past that you, you're ashamed of, you, you, you would never, you'd never really want to talk about because that was a bad day, a bad time, a bad experience in your life. You have some things that represent shame in your life. And the Bible says that in that moment that Mephibosheth came into David's palace, the shame was removed. And the same is true for you and me when you and I invite Jesus Christ into our lives. In that one moment of time, in that conversation, when we open our hearts and lives to Christ, there's a complete, total forgiveness of every sin you've ever committed. There's a washing away of every stain that is upon your soul. All those things that represent the bad mistakes, the difficult things that you've done in life that have hurt you and hurt other people there in that moment. There's forgiveness that flows and the shame that's driven away. See, God never designed you to carry shame. God designed you to live in forgiveness, forgiveness, mercy. And you're also brought into a place where you, you can now be fruitful with your life. Some of us will say, you know, pastor, I have a pretty fruitful life. I'm doing some good things. But often we measure that the way the world does in terms of success. That's not a fruitful life. What's a fruitful life is this. When you do things, it will last for eternity. Okay. That's a fruitful life. But because the Bible says that one day we're going to all stand before God. And the works that we do in our flesh will all be burned up. And the only thing that will remain are the works that we've done for God. And so a fruitful life is when I'm giving my life to make a difference in people's lives. I'm, I'm making a difference for eternity. The second thing that grace and mercy and kindness will do for you is it brings you into the king's family and into the king's palace. I love this part. I'm so thankful that I can stand before you today and say I'm a child of God. I'm not going to be a child of God. I'm already a child of God. I'm one of his kids. I'm in the family. I'm not trying to get in the family. I'm in the family. I'm not trying to belong. I already belong. You know, a lot of people will spend their whole life trying to belong to a group. If I could just get into that group, I'd be happy. If I could just get into that group, I think I'd feel good about myself. Let me tell you, there's no better family to belong to, no better group to belong to than the family of God. It gives you worth. It gives you value. It gives you that sense of significance. And so here is, here is, here's Mephibosheth. He comes in. He's been living in Lodabar. And David says, from this day on, you're in my family. 
You belong to me. You're in my household. In this, now you're going to live in a palace with a king, and I brought you into the family of God. And you and I need to recognize that when we're born again, the Holy Spirit inside of us gives testimony that we're one of God's children. So we walk with our head held high in the recognition that we belong to the family of Almighty God, that we live in the palace of God. We have a relationship with God. So what does... What does grace do for you? What does kindness do for you from God? It first of all washes away your shame and gives you a life potentially of fruitfulness. It allows you to recognize that now I am a child of God. I'm in the family. And because I'm in the family, I have a house that I'm living in with God. Thirdly, it restores blessings that were forfeited in your life. I know that was one you really wanted to say hallelujah to, but you, you, know, you were just thinking about it. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to say it again. It restores blessings that were forfeited in your life. I love this part. Can you imagine? Are you getting the picture here? Are you sitting there with Mephibosheth? He's getting this news for the first time. Are you in the palace right now with me? And David says, okay, Mephibosheth, by the way, there's something else I want to do for you. You know, all that, all that land your grandfather had, he had a lot of land. He was the king. All that stuff that your grandfather accrued during his life and all the stuff your dad accrued, and then it was all taken away from you. you. You missed out on it. Here's what I want you to do. I'm going I'm to set an edict in the land. And everything that belonged to your grandfather and everything that belonged to your father now belongs to you. Okay. That what was taken from you, listen, what was taken from you is now being restored to you. Okay. In life, in life. By the mistakes that we make and the journey that we often find ourselves on and the, and the sins we commit and the difficulties we go through in life, sometimes the adversary steals our inheritance. Has the devil ever stole your joy? Has he ever stole your peace? That's your inheritance in Christ, but he steals from us. The Bible says the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. I want you to see today that you're sitting in the presence of a king the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You're right. You're sitting in his presence. He is in this place today. Are you hearing me? Jesus is in this place today and you're sitting in his presence. I want you to hear Jesus whisper to you. I'm restoring to you what the enemy has stolen from you. Okay? I'm restoring to you what the enemy has stolen from you. There's a great moment for Mephibosheth. And there's one last thing I want to mention here. What is grace and compassion and kindness do for us. It secures our future in this life and in the life to come. Mephibosheth never worried about a meal for the rest of his life. Prior to this time, he was most likely a charity case and he lived by the benevolence of other people. But from this time forward, David said, you're always sitting at my table. One thing is for sure. If you're at the king's table, there's plenty of food there. So here's Mephibosheth at the king's table for the rest of his life. He is secured for his future. See, security is a very big thing. Think about all the billions of dollars that are spent in our world today trying to get security. Think about your own life, how, how much effort you put into trying to be secure, not only physically, but emotionally in every realm of life. And I'm here to tell you that God now, as you're in his palace, as you're part of his family, he has secured your future. You don't have to worry about tomorrow. Jesus said, 
don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear, for your Father knows that, that you have need of these things. And simply seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and everything else will be added to you. Don't give your time to worry and anxiety and fear about those things that you have need of in your life. The Father has all the blessings already stored up in heaven with your name on it. You've got a place at the king's table. You're provided for for the rest of your life. Don't worry or fret. The Father has you. You're secure. But it's not just security for this life. It's security for the life to come. See, this life is not all there is. One day, this life is going to be over. Every one of us will breathe our last breath one day. Should Jesus tarry, we'll breathe our last breath. And once you breathe that last breath, it's over with. You've made a decision in this life for where you're going to spend eternity. That's the way it works. You don't get to choose then, you choose now. And there are only two destinations when it comes to eternity. One is called eternal separation from God. We refer to that as hell. I can't tell you everything about hell. I don't understand it. Thank God I've never been there. Okay. okay. Don't plan on going. Okay. Don't want anybody's postcard. Okay. But I'll tell you one thing that I know for sure about hell is the, the worst thing about hell, whatever it is, the worst thing about hell is that you will be eternally separated from God, from your creator. That's the worst thing about hell. There's another place, and it's called heaven, and it is a place. Jesus said, I go there to prepare a place for you. So heaven is a place. Hell is a place. Heaven is a place. Theologically, we understand that. And I'm so thankful that when I invited Jesus into my life, when I had that moment of a conversation with Jesus and opening my heart to God through Christ, that I heard the Lord whisper by his word in my heart, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. And that day, when I made Jesus Christ the Lord of my life, and I'm sure that it's true for many, if not all of you, most of you certainly, there was a security that came inside of me that I never have worried one day of my life about where I'm going when I die. I know where I'm going. I don't stay awake at night worrying about it because heaven is already in my soul. I already have a relationship with God. I know where I'm going when I die. I know that that's going to be a moving forward for eternity and relationship with God and whatever that looks like, I don't know for sure. Heaven will not be a boring place. It's going to be an amazing place. Okay. A lot of people have the wrong idea of heaven. They think it's somehow everybody goes to heaven and they have a little cloud and they put on an angel suit and get a harp and they just kind of float around for eternity playing a harp. Okay. No, it's not what it's about. Okay. No, heaven is the most amazing place you can imagine, far beyond anything you can dream of in your own heart or mind, far beyond the best resort you've ever been to in your entire life, the greatest experiences you've ever had, the best food you've ever eaten, okay? the best music you've ever heard, the most incredible things that go beyond our human capacity to even comprehend. That's what heaven is. And I'm so grateful that I get to go to heaven, not because I'm worthy, because Jesus is worthy. Amen? Okay. I'm thankful that I, listen, Mephibosheth could never have worked it out to be in the king's house. His own works would have never gotten him there, right? There's one thing that got him there. What was it that got him there? 
David said, I need to find somebody from the house of Saul to whom I can show hesed, to whom I can show kindness for the sake of Jonathan and for the sake of Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. I get to go to heaven, not because of what I've done, but because of everything that Jesus did for me. That's mercy and that's grace. If you're still, if you're still trying to earn your salvation, can I just tell you, quit? I'm not saying quit living for God and quit being the best person you can be and asking God to fill you with his Holy Spirit, live the best life that you can live. But I'm telling you, you don't get to heaven by what you do. You get to heaven by putting your faith in what Jesus did for you, okay? Just like Mephibosheth experienced what he did in David's palace because of what David did for him, we experience security in this life and in the life that's to come by what God the Father has done for us through his mercy through his kindness, and through his grace. And the last thing I'll say as I'm concluding here today is this. If God has shown grace to you, do not let it stop with you. If God has shown grace to you, you need to make a decision to let his grace flow through you to the people that need grace around you. And let us be channels of grace and kindness to others. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word this morning. We're so grateful for the opportunity that we have to study. We ask you to take this message and seal it in our heart by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. I would like to close today by giving you an opportunity to ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Would you pray with me right now? Right where you are, just simply bow your head with me and I'm going to give you a prayer to pray and you can simply speak this prayer out, whisper this prayer out and from the sincerity of your heart, call upon God and I promise you that He will hear and answer you. So let's pray together. Start by simply whispering the name Jesus. Let there come uh, from your heart just the declaration of His name. Say, Jesus, I know that, that I am a sinner, that I have fallen short with you. I'm sorry for all of my sins. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you are God's Son. I believe that you are the Savior of the world. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you rose from the grave, that you are alive today. Now pray these words. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Give me a new start in you. I commit my life to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, I want to encourage you with a promise from God's Word that says that when we call upon God's name, we call upon the Son of God, there is salvation that comes to our lives. He changes us from the inside out, and you become a new creation. All things pass away. All things become new. And that's exactly what has happened to you today. Your next step really is to make sure that you get into a good Bible-believing church. And you begin to study God's Word, get God's Word in you, and to make sure that you get a copy of the Bible if you don't have one and begin to read it. Spend some time every day in prayer. And I would encourage you also to check out the resources on our website that will help you to get going in your relationship with Jesus. You can find them at church-redeemer.org. Get those into your hands. Get started in your new life with Jesus Christ. Thanks again for joining us today. May God bless you, and we look forward to seeing you next time. If you've prayed with a pastor today and made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, we have some resources for you on our website. Just go to church-redeemer.org slash a new you. We pray that this message was a blessing to you.